Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Susan Bordeaux, cultural historian, professor emeritus, feminist, and author of the books The Destruction of Hillary Clinton and Imagine Bernie Sanders as a Woman. We speak with Susan today about her work to deconstruct woman as a cultural category, its role in the 2016 election, and what it means to be a woman today in public life. Our conversation explores the ways in which the same behaviors exhibited or embodied by men are treated differently by the media when we observe them in women, how society is complicit in reinforcing these cultural norms, double binds, double standards, and what it communicates to the girls and boys we raise. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for being on this show. I mean, I've been looking forward to talking to you for so long, and it seems so apt that several of your books are just very timely in terms of the cultural conversation that we're having. It's interesting, isn't it, that though they were read, at least one of them was written a while ago, nothing very much has changed. Yeah, I know. And I actually read Imagine Bernie Sanders as a Woman first, but I think we should start with the destruction of Hillary Clinton and the ideas that were in there, because from a chronological perspective, this was in response to, obviously, the 2016 election. And, you know, I didn't really get a sense of what was the reception to this book? I know that there were issues with the title, but what was the reception initially? And what has been the reception like now with the past three and a half years? It's really interesting. This, this was the first book that I had ever written that did not get reviewed in the mainstream media at all. The first stage of my career was really about um, the body and looking at the ways in which women's bodies are shaped by culture and and all of that, and I wrote a book about men and men's bodies, very well received, book about Anne Boleyn, very well received, Hillary Clinton book, silence, not a single mainstream review, nobody wanted to interview me on TV except for one rather disastrous MSNBC afternoon interview, um, which I can tell you a little bit about if you want in a minute. But there was like, it was almost as though, you know, I'm not a, a paranoid person. You know, I'm not, when you've been a writer as long as I am, you don't, you know, immediately think people are out to get you, <laughs> you know, because you're used to, to criticism. But this total dead silence was really so startling to me. And it was almost as though they were telling me in my book, just as they were telling Hillary Clinton, go into the woods. We don't want to hear from you. You know, it, it, the, at the time that the book came out, and this was before so much was revealed about Russian interference and hacking and the bots and um, people hadn't begun to put together the influence of um, James Comey. The standard narrative was it was Hillary's fault. This is what you heard on the media right after the election. You probably remember it. And, you know, she didn't go to the right states at the right time. And this was a book that argued that um, although, of course, you know, like any campaign, Hillary's campaign made mistakes, that in fact was a, you know, a perfect storm of external elements, including the reception to her as a woman and a particular kind of woman that ultimately sank her. You know, any one of them, you pull out any one of them and she might have, you know, she got three million more votes, right, than Donald Trump. Um, it was a razor thin victory for him, but it was not the official narrative at the time. The official narrative at the time, book that came out exactly the same week as my book, was shattered, which argued that Hillary was a tyrant who bullied her staff and she made disastrous mistakes in her campaign. And, you know, thoroughly, thoroughly fault-blaming and full of, full of the most incredible sexist descriptions 
about Hillary barking on the telephone to to her. Now, you know, this this despite the fact that there was nothing in this book about outside interference, nothing about, you know, GOP dirty tricks, nothing about Comey or the pumping up of the email scandal. It was all Hillary's fault. It became the official narrative. And I now thinking back on why there was such silence around my book, I think one, it was not considered to be fashionable to defend Hillary in any way. I think people saw me as being a kind of surrogate for her. And just as they resented her, they resented me for that. And the time was just not receptive to it. You know, the times were not receptive to it. Now, at this point, now that we've discovered so much, and we've also had to, we've also encountered some of the recycling of the same kinds of rhetoric that was used against Hillary, against Kamala and others of the candidates, you would think that, okay, well, now, you know, now is the time that, you know, people will recognize this book. But in fact, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's just, uh, it's faded away. It's faded away. And um, it's, it's always been a little bit of a puzzle to me, you know, as to why, as to why that happened um, and why it continues to happen. But then again, Hillary continues to be blamed for everything she does. I mean, she just cannot do anything right. And that's part of what I analyze in the book, right? So there's a kind of, uh, what's the, um, what's that symbol? The Ouroboros, you know, the snake that eats its own tail. (laughs) You know, it's sort of as though the media that has been so intent, both for unconscious reasons and conscious reasons, at um, creating a certain portrait of Hillary um, is negating the very criticism of it of itself. You know, it's a very media critical book, and I name names, and I, I think probably in some ways, um, you know, there's been a certain kind of defensiveness on the part of uh, you know the, the mainstream media to the book. Fact is, I really don't know exactly what happened. You know, I found it somewhat baffling. So we had on our show, have you seen the documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad? No, I haven't. Highly recommend it. You would love love the filmmaker, who's also based out uh-huh. of New York, like myself. And the work that she does, she chronicles her father's growing descent, basically, into a Fox News obsession. Mm-hmm. and right-wing news obsession and how it changed his personality and demeanor and that impacted the family and his relationships. And then I'm not going to give away what happens, but he did get quote unquote deprogrammed by the family in some way. So there is hope. Uh Um, You know, even though the story was about her father, it was replete with examples and interviews with people from the right wing and media, looking at the history of the way the media has set itself up in terms of regulations and deregulations to really monopolize the cultural narrative around Mm -hmm, issues mm -hmm. such as Mm -hmm. freedom, right? And what it is to be a family. And so one of the things that wasn't so much examined in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I think there was a lot of emphasis on the immediate up until the election, the events up until then, the immediate events, but nothing looking back like 30, 40 years since the women's movement and what this film, The Brainwashing of My Dad, does is looking at the way the media was established and, for example, how the right wing built this whole enterprise infrastructure around placing people in universities, creating think tanks, funding professorships, you know, in legitimate positions mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. as law, right, and of positions of influence yeah. in culture, where they have basically set up, I think, a system that is there to refute anything that women do, including Hillary. And I don't remember mm-hmm. what documentary I saw, but she was talking about the right-wing conspiracy, and there was a documentary on feminism that basically chronicled all of the ways in which the right-wing has you know, built up a narrative to refute anything that she has to say or do, right? And fund it. I, yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, she was right on target about the right-wing conspiracy, you know, absolutely on target. 
However, I think it's important to note that the left was campaigning against her too. And I think without that confluence, you know, there was a kind of joining together at a certain point during this election, right, the 2016 election, what the right was saying about her and what the left was saying about her, that was just, you know, a, an almost insurmountable set of ideas about Hillary. You know, for, for that, for the left-wing contribution, you know, I, I'm very critical of Bernie Sanders for having branded her in certain ways, And then even after she got the nomination, not being willing to let go of those brands, you know, so that he was and he because he was an idol among certain groups of people, even when he very weakly endorsed her, it didn't really matter very much. People still saw him as the rightful nominee and were unable to come over the way, you know, when Barack Obama was was nominated. Those of us who had supported Hillary immediately, and, you know, Hillary's encouragement played a great role in that, immediately got on the bandwagon, you know, of enthusiastic support for Obama. That did not happen with Hillary. Didn't happen at all. You know, instead, Bernie Sanders was urging, you know, people to continue to make our revolution. And all of the tropes about Hillary that had been thrown out during the election were still very, very much alive. You just had a pylon, an enormous pylon. And I would remind those people who now want to see it as all about Russia, that Russia got its ideas about who to focus on, you know, what groups got them from homegrown sources, right? It's sort of, you know, the, the, the sequence is a little bit like cool shopping, you know, when people are out there looking at what is going to be fashionable in, you know, songs and clothing, Russia sniffed out, you know, what was in our own domestic air and elevated it, enhanced it, as we say nowadays, amplified it. When you talk about Bernie um, being on the left, <laughs> I have to laugh because because I I'm I don't know what what people would categorize me as, probably just as an agitator, but I don't consider him to be on the left because of his misogyny and how he renders sexism and misogyny and women's issues invisible. And so to whatever extent that people support his policies, which for the most part I do, if you don't center women's issues, which is at the root of all the other policy issues that he cares about, then I don't know how you can be a progressive. Yeah. Problem is, I agree with you completely, as you probably know from reading the book. But the problem was too many people didn't see it that way. He defined progressive. You know, this business about controlling the narrative that we're both so interested in. He defined what it meant to be a progressive. And all of the the holes in his own politics were completely smoothed over. Also, you know, it... it, it uh, I'm sure you remember this. It really was during that election, a lot of the issues that since then have had a certain amount of purchase on politics and and culture were really derided. And they were derided by both Bernie and by Trump as being playing the woman card. So anytime you raised an issue that was feminist, you're playing the woman card. And uh, so all of the things that what you're talking about in terms of Bernie's failure to truly be a progressive by virtue of the fact that, you know, women's issues were completely negligible to him was a widespread cultural thing. I mean, we really had, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I look at the comparison between the discourse around women's issues in 2012 and 2016. And the fact is, we went backwards. We went backwards. You know, there were people who lost elections because they said stupid things about reproduction and rape. You know, you can remember that. And that kind of stuff in 2016 was seen as, oh, they're playing the woman card. And, you know, it was not surprising coming from Trump. 
But Bernie did it too. Bernie did it too. And so many young people, there's a great deal that the generations that are now politically active are adding to what's going on now. But at that particular moment, they their lack of understanding of, of women's history and gender history and gender theory made them very vulnerable to the way Sanders defined things, calling Planned Parenthood establishment, you know, the, the, whole, the whole bit. When we talk about women and women's issues and the playing the woman's card, it reminds me of this dynamic where going back to Hillary, like people who are in a domestic violence relationship when you're growing up in an abusive home, the children who are witnessing it, often in their experience, in their trauma, they respond by blaming the victim, right? Blaming the mother for not leaving or not protecting them. Yeah, yeah. And so I see in some ways similarities where we as a society were blaming her for not doing X, Y, and Z enough, not going to visit certain states, the emails, whatever it is. And at the same time, trying to render invisible the structural issues, which is the woman card, if you're going to bring it up, that actually contributed to creating this response that has been going on for her for decades, but since the beginning of time, to keep women in subordinate positions. So we are being victimized for our response for not being strong in an oppressive situation. And yet when we call it out, we're not allowed to do so either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a double bind. I mean, one of the sort of the key uh, concepts in the book is the concept of the double bond. You know, you really can't win no matter which way you go. You have to be strong enough to demonstrate that you have the cojones, <laughs> you know, to, to be up there with the boys. But if you're too what gets interpreted as masculine, right, then the sort of misogynistic fear of the overwhelming mother, you know, you mentioned the mother, and I think this is really an important piece of the reaction that some people had to Hillary. She became a screen onto which all kinds of projections about mothers got, whether it was a husband's you know, ideas about his, you know, the wife who wants him to take out the garbage every night, the nagging wife, or a generation of women who felt as though a new generation of women, a younger generation, who sort of, you know, it was very hard for them to disentangle, as it is for all of us, their mother's politics from their mother as dominating figures in their own lives. So, uh, you know, because there comes a time when, you know, all of us feel sort of like, well, you know, we have to separate from our mothers to a certain extent in order to be our own individuals. I mean, it's just normal developmental stuff. And unfortunately, for a, a generation, and I'm generalizing here, because this certainly wasn't the case with Black women. I mean, you know, you really do need a whole different analysis for the way in which Black women responded to Hillary. But for, you know, the privileged white children of feminist mothers, right, being the kind of feminist that Hillary was, was not seen as entirely a progressive thing, because it was identified with their mothers, and everything that the mother carries with it. You know, you mentioned the blaming of the mother. Sure, for sure. This is a very, very common phenomenon. And this is just one of the things that infuriated me so much. You know, Bernie gets seen as a kindly grandfather with the right politics, and which is a an incredibly attractive combination to young people. You know, you've got the, the granddad, but he's also a left politico, right? Whereas Hillary gets seen as a, dominate, a dominating, uptight, stiff, old, second wave figure. We're constantly letting men off the hook, whereas we do not let women off the hook for anything. And this happened over and over and over again in that campaign. 
excuses were made, you know, for Bernie. Excuses were made for Trump, for God's sakes. Hillary, never, never. And I think that that's, you know, when, when I think about, you know, my own daughter and a few years ago before she, you know, she's 21 now, you know, when she was uh, in her teenage years, I was at fault for everything. I mean, anything that happened was my fault. She would never blame her father. You know, there's just this difference in the way we think of mothers and fathers, men and women, that has infected our politics really, really deeply. So you're speaking of basically the cultural double standard, especially if it shows up in policy, is very problematic. But for many of our listeners, if they don't have a history of uh, Hillary, could you speak to some of the double standards that she experienced when she first came on to the national scene as first lady and the criticisms that she received with regard to her name and her appearance and all of that. <laughs> yeah, she, um, you know, Hillary has, has had this like unfortunate, uh, how should I put it? She always seems to come up against whatever the sort of most uh, reactive elements within the culture are when it comes to gender so, you know, she's part of my generation. We're basically the same age. Hillary and I are the same age. She comes to her role of first lady, having gone through the women's movement, having gone through this sort of blossoming of our feelings out of a period in which we were told the most important thing in the world was to get married and to, you know, have children and couldn't be too aggressive and, you know, couldn't want too much out of one's own career. And then that kind of cracked open. And for all of his faults, Bill Clinton is not a man that was threatened by that. And so she's in this egalitarian relationship. Now, you know, I'm putting aside the issue of, you know, the sexual imbalance and all of that. Let's put that aside. In terms of her pursuing a career, he was, it was an egalitarian relationship. And when she became first lady, she genuinely thought, and he genuinely thought, wow, people are just going to be thrilled to have a powerful woman at my side, who will fight for things like health care. And boy, were they in for a rude shock. I mean, in some ways, she had already encountered her as First Lady Governor of Arkansas when she didn't take his name. And there was a great flap over that. And, you know, she looked wrong. You know, she still had her hippie look with the frizzy hair and the glasses and sort of peasant Laura Ashley type clothes, which I wore in those days too. And, uh, you know, she, when he lost his, his rebid for governor, she got herself in shape. You know, she straightened her hair and she started to wear makeup and she took his last name and sure enough, he won. So she'd already had a taste of it. But by the time she got in the White House, you know, they both were really quite naive in some ways about how her brains and her ambition would be received. You know, the media has had this tendency, not just with Hillary, but certainly dominantly with Hillary, to take a tiny little piece of what she says and to leave the context behind. I mean, it's happened over and over and over again with her. And uh, the cookies and tea remark is an example of that. She was being questioned about her continued affiliation with the law firm that she was working for. And she replied, I could have, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I chose to go on with my career. And then she went on to say, women should be able to do both. And all these choices should be valued. But of course, that, you know, that context was not presented. Instead, it was just the most inflammatory thing. And it happened over and over again. The Loretta Lynn remark, I could have been some little woman standing by my man. Loretta Lynn got angry at her because she thought she was being, you know, that Hillary was saying she was just a little woman standing by her man. And she was just quoting this song. Um, it's just happened over and over and over again with Hillary. Hillary gives herself over to working on health care, really, you know, in ways that now we are celebrating. You know, when, when um, 
Bernie began to make universal health care a keynote of his progressivism. People had completely forgotten that Hillary had fought for that and had been excoriated for it in some ways because, you know, she had yet to learn about the difficulties of dealing with, with Congress. In some ways because people just resented the fact that she was being given such a prominent role. In the book, you use the term uppity to describe her, that not that she was a woman, but that she was a certain kind of woman, right? And an uppity is also described in race. Exactly. This is a point that I think, you know, I'd really like to make this point because too often we hear the term misogyny just kind of like thrown around. I think it's too broad a stroke. I think that, um, you know, we're not talking about women hating across the board. We're talking about resentment and anger and fear of a certain kind of woman, right? A woman who is seen as stepping out of her place, a woman who is aspiring too high, a woman who somehow has rejected, you know, what we consider to be the proper way of being feminine. And the one of the reasons, I mean, there are lots of reasons why, you know, Black women did not have the same reaction to Hillary during that election and, and, and still don't. But I think that, that among the reasons was a very different perspective on strength and power and assertiveness in a woman and familiarity with how it feels to be described as being not in one's place, being uppity, an uppity woman that resonated in a different way for Black women who had been accused of that so often and who admired because, you know, it's a requirement of being a Black mother, being a Black woman in this culture, the kind of resilience and strength and ability to stand up for oneself that Hillary demonstrated was seen by Black women as a positive, not as something that made them feel all cringy and You know, I think that we talk a lot about the white women who betrayed Hillary, you know, and didn't vote for her. I think, you know, that needs to be described a little more precisely. I think we're talking about women who had chosen a certain path in life and who saw Hillary's choices as invalidating theirs. It was sort of the reaction to the cookies and tea on a much broader scale that her You know, if you've decided that you're going to attach yourself to a husband and sort of fulfill the domestic role, and it becomes very important to you to not be identified with those women who seem to be leaning in too far, right? One of the ways I think that you can accomplish that disidentification is through politics. So... You know, though I understand the sort of, you know, blanketing things in terms of, you know, white women, black women, I think that um, when it comes to analyzing the issues that faced Hillary Clinton, you need a little bit more precision than that. Well, I want to challenge you on the use of the term precision with regard to describing misogyny as applying, if I'm hearing you correctly, only to people who are criticizing a certain kind of woman, because those white women who are protecting their gender roles and those people who are not critical of women who stay within those boundaries, they're experiencing internalized sexism and misogyny. So it's just a different form where certain people get rewarded, but others get punished. But it still stems from sexism and misogyny. Yeah. I I guess what I don't see is how that's different from what I'm saying. In other words, whether it's internalized or it comes from outside, the image of the woman that is abhorrent, right, whether it's you see it within yourself or it comes at you from outside, is not of just women in general. It's of women who don't, let's say, normalize themselves as expected, So I wouldn't disagree with you at all. I just, you know, I feel as though unless we get um, more exact about the sources of our misogyny, that 
we continue to be kind of clueless about it. You know, and that's what we saw with, you know, 2020, the the primary. You know, all these things were being recycled over and over and over again. And people, you know, they, they it was extraordinary to those of us who have seen it happen historically to see, my God, when are we going to really pick this stuff apart? You know, after Hillary lost, you did not see one media panel talking about sexism in the election. Not one. I followed it very, very closely. Um, You didn't see one. And it really was only in the context of, you know, the more recent primaries that people started to talk about sexism. But even then, they didn't look back and apply it to the Hillary case. I think what you're saying just exposes like how normalized these beliefs are that even recently in our, you know, I've had multiple conversations in domestic violence advocacy circles post-COVID. And since George Floyd and, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been, I would say, almost universal adoption of anti-racism, at least rhetoric, um, and possibly policy in organizations, professional organizations, and in nonprofit spaces, right? So there's lots of efforts now, you know, to implement anti-racism training initiatives, etc. And in these spaces, because of my work with these victims advocates, I've been literally banging this drum by myself practically because um, I think partly because I'm one of the few people in the space who's not getting funded, um, getting government funding. So there's no conflict of interest. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'm always almost always the only person banging the drum of can we also have anti-sexism training? Right. Yeah. You, yeah. If you're working for an organization that's serving victims of s- domestic violence and gender-based violence, and the name of your organization, let's say the city agency, has the phrase gender-based violence, why are we not you know, interrogating the extent to which internalized sexism and sexism plays a role in how we are serving these clients? It's like infuriating to me that nobody... Like people are just swishing me away from this space mm-hmm, mm-hmm. figuratively. And I just, I don't know what to do other than to keep repeating myself and these yeah. conversations that I'm having. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. And at the same time, you know, people are priding themselves on being such intersectionalists. Well, you know, if you're truly an intersectionalist, then you've got to talk about gender and the ways in which it modifies race and vice versa. It's just a slogan until you start to do that. But we do seem to have this, um, I mean, I know exactly what you mean about the frustration because I feel it all the time. You know, racism is a huge problem. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it, and one, you know, is not, one doesn't have to choose between an analysis of racism and analysis of sexism. But there's a way in which sexism never gets interrogated in the same way that finally we are beginning to interrogate race, despite the fact that people have, like, for a long time, there's been periods when women have begun to talk about it. You know, there's been a kind of bubbling up of consciousness, but it always manages to get thrust down under other issues. When I'm having these discussions, I always flip it to the race analogy to just show how crazy it is that there are certain things that are normalized in one space and accepted and not in the other, right? So, for example, we're reading um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ram Kendi's book for our book club. He talks about you're either a racist or anti-racist. And I feel the same way with regard to sexism. You're either sexist or to be anti-sexist is to be pro-feminist, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. if you're going to be anything as a woman, as a man, whatever, anti-feminism, then you're basically calling yourself a sexist. That should be something that is just as stigmatized as racism because 
know, in my perspective, sexism is the first othering. Besides the historical, cultural context, anthropologically, you learn about the first other through your family unit. You don't learn mm-hmm. about race and class and disability necessarily until you've interacted with more people outside of your family unit. And so to expect that people can adopt social justice approach towards equality that is only about race and not to interrogate it in their own personal relationships, which are a precursor to any kind of othering, <laughs> is just myopic and I don't know what other uh, other word to say that's going to be acceptable <laughs> in, in this conversation, but it's it's um, short-sighted because we've also read that sexism and misogyny is the gateway to white supremacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so people wanting to address racism, you can't address it without addressing sexism. No, you can't. You can't. And you know, what you're saying reminds me of a, a connected topic, which is When we talk about the various kinds of sexist reactions to Hillary or to Kamala or to any other woman who is, you know, at the forefront, one of the things that never gets talked about is the degree to which we are scared as a culture of feminism. You know, Hillary's, it wasn't that Hillary was a woman. She was a feminist woman. You know, one of the things that one might say about the women who were running for office this time, though they are clearly, many of them were clearly feminist, Connell is a feminist. She didn't uh, wear the banner of it the way Hillary did. And I think that uh, people have come to feel that it's a, you know, it's an albatross around a woman's neck to call herself a feminist. Never seems to people as though being an anti-racist is obviously to, you know, the the right. We're just putting the right out of the conversation for now, right? Because I think, in fact, that we have to always look to our own houses. And I think that, you know, this has been infecting the left really badly for quite a while. And the Trumpists are sort of lost causes. You know, I don't even consider that it's worth trying to convince them of anything. But if we just look inside our own backyards, it's not seen as a, an impediment within the left. This is why we're part of the left, because obviously it's seen as an impediment from the right for one to be a fighter for racial justice. But there is something still suspect about being too explicit and forthcoming about being a fighter for sexual justice. And, you know, that's changed a little just recently. You know, it's, it's, I think that, that the nomination of someone like Kamala can do a hell of a lot to move some of these ideas along um, because she is, uh, you know, she's much more forthright about what she thinks and what she feels than she doesn't play some of the, um, yeah, I'm still a little girl games that other people might play. So she may, you know, things may be in flux there. But up until now, for certain, it was an obstacle to declare your feminism. And that's something that we really need to think about. Um, You know, how far have we come from 68 and 70s when there were caricatures of feminism, feminists on the covers of magazines as ball-busting Amazons? We haven't come that far from that. I think part of what helps to sustain that narrative and to keep us from embracing feminism as much is this parallel, you know, effort for the past several decades, right, 50 50 years now, I guess, on the right to control women's bodies. And so if they're still trying to control our bodies and our bodies don't belong to us and we don't have full personhood when we're pregnant and even, uh, of course, under the Constitution, we don't, we aren't recognized yet, then it makes it easier for us to not have Full personhood when it comes to expressing ourselves and a part of ourself is being a feminist and being an advocate, then it's consistent that we can't 
part of being a woman is not being able to be free to say who you are and to express who you are in its sort of full capacity. I think that's part of it. And I think, too, that feminism is seen much more than movements for racial justice as wanting to tear down the fabric of heterosexual relations. You know, the the normalized family, the normalized heterosexual family, so that it is much more directly a threat to certain systemic structures and to male dominance than movements for racial justice. I mean, there's a kind of um, fear of sharing power there that's very primal. It's very, very primal. You know, to go back to your point about this starts in the family. These things resonate with very early experiences that we haven't begun to sort of like take apart and face. So I think that it is genuinely more threatening in a certain way. You know, I could get into trouble for saying that, you know, because it does seem as though racism is so much more widespread and violent in its expression. Do you think they represent a threat? For sure. There is something that you have to internalize a great deal of racialized ideas in order to feel threatened by the idea of sharing power, of of blacks and whites sharing power. Whereas I think that when it comes to the sharing of power between men and women, You don't really have to internalize a hell of a lot. You just have to have grown up in this culture. It isn't as though you have to have grown up thinking, oh, men are this and women are that. There's so much that you just sort of absorb through the skin that then becomes a kind of a a substructure, psychological, that's ready to be awakened and react now, I'm sure that there, you know, there are people who grew up and feel the same way about race, but it's have grown up sort of like in, in situations in which, which the reaction to black bodies is so ingrained, you know, is so much a part of the air one breathes that it's much akin to the reaction to, to women. But it's almost as though all you need to do is be a man to have all of that going on. So here's my theory. I think this is something I just thought of as you were speaking, and you were trying to contrast the two. So one is, I can't remember, I've been to several talks by neuropsychologists, neuroscientists, and they've done studies around racism and how it's learned, etc. And they've also shown in those studies that you can unlearn them so that increasing exposure to people of different races and cultures and ethnicities can actually reduce racial prejudice. Mm -hmm. But if you think about that, if that's the quote unquote antidote, well, how do we have an antidote to sexism? Because everybody, when they grow up, for the most part, has exposure to women. So increasing exposure, you already have exposure. If you're a white family growing up in the South and you've been ingrained with racist ideas from your family, but you have no exposure, then, of course, you're going you're gonna to be indoctrinated to believe a certain way. And then when you realize the reality is, oh, these these myths are actually just myths. They were made up stories and you can unlearn them. But when you grow up in the society, you already have women, you know, unless you have like, uh, you know, even if you don't have a woman in your immediate family as a parent, maybe aunts, teachers, you're always going to be exposed to women in the right. home, right? Right. And there is no antidote to say, oh, let's expose you more and therefore you're going to ha- be less less sexist. <laughs> You find out they're people. In other words, there's this sort of thing like if once you find out that these the other is just a person just like you, well, that doesn't really happen very easily with women, right? It's not that it happens easily with any other. But, you know, one thing that I've really been struck by is how, you know, in looking at how ideas about gay, lesbian, transsexual, other different sorts of sexualities and gender identities that we've actually come a lot farther in that respect 
than we have in terms of ideas about gender, about men and women. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that there, there is this blossoms, a lot of, you know, the, the homophobia and the transphobia blossoms in a situation in which one is isolated from actually knowing people. The coming out of people has made so many people realize, oh my gosh, you know, Aunt Faye actually was a lesbian, right? And she's a person, right? Or my daughter actually is transgender. Well, you know, some people might just run away and harm from that. But more often than not, eventually, one is going to see people that you're intimate with, you know, that you've already learned to see as people, it's going to wear down the other ideas. And you don't have the same thing happening. You don't have the same thing happening with women, you know, which which you were just pointing out, that familiarity doesn't seem to shake up ideas. And I'm thinking that part of the reason is because with racism, you know, when you're racist, you're protecting your power structure in the public space, the social space. Um, It's about protecting your power and enacting power, you know, in the workplace, in, you know, how you access housing and get access to financial resources and jobs and whatever, all of these other things, whereas Sexism is about protecting your power in the home. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so hard to address it, because you might be able to give up some power in the workspace, be anti-racist. But if if you want to give up your power in the home, that's like so fundamental to who you are and your definition of your Mm -hmm. relationship in your family unit or your your social network that it's too disruptive. Yeah, and it reflects too much on your own sense of having a successful identity as a man or a woman. You know, it's no accident that, you know, Bill Clinton got the reputation for being a whim. You know, people used to call him female, feminine, because he had, you know, a wife who was powerful and brainy and it gets at, and who knows, I mean, maybe some of his affairs were, you know, a reaction to feeling somewhat intimidated. I don't know. I don't know about their personal relationship. It gets at that that relationship just gets at our notions of, you know, who we are, you know, in a very fundamental way. Um, It takes more real work, I think, on oneself you know, leaving aside the, the political work of, you know, changing systems, it takes more work on oneself, I think, than almost any other change in, in, in power relations. These things are so deeply embedded. You know, you use the phrase in talking about other things triggering. There's so much triggering that goes on that we're not in control of, that just you see something, you hear something, and it sets off a chain of associations and feelings that are very deeply embedded in personal unconscious and also in the collective unconscious. I mean, because we are talking about, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of ideas that have come down to us in so many forms. To your point, like the cultural shaping of women as liars, the the Medusa as being hysterical. There's this meme that has been going around the internet since Hillary's lost in 2016, that people are willing to believe the worst myths about women and refuse to accept the worst facts about men. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So my, my therapist... I always look at what's happening in the world in terms of these interpersonal dynamics that we kind of project into different spaces. And her theory, which I agree with, is that we have so many people like white women who are supporting Trump uh, and white people in general because he is the epitome of he's an abuser, he's a predator, but he's like the father figure that's in their lives that reinforces the, the religious narratives and the social positions that they have And to interrogate who Donald Trump is, is to interrogate who their father is, their pastor, their brother, and how even they may have raised their own sons. And themselves. And themselves, yes. It's always been my feeling that the popularity of Trump, a lot of it, 
comes from the fact that people feel like they're looking in a mirror. Exactly. And this person in the mirror has achieved enormous power. So voting for him is like voting for oneself. So that even his worst gaffes, in a way, become fodder for hero worship of him. Because, you know, when he can't speak, you know, he can't put together an English sentence, you know, and we all make fun of that. But lots of people look at that and think, wow, I had trouble with my words, too. And look where he got. So all the things that we cringe at, not just the things that we find morally repugnant, right, like the racism and the, and the homophobia and the, and the sexism, but the things that are just deficits, his cognitive deficits, which are so abundant, you know, and his people find those appealing because they, they feel like I've been kicked around for that all my life. Well, now this guy is showing that people like us can make it to the very top. So screw you, you elite West and East Coast liberals who know, you know, who think you know how to use the English language. You don't need to know how to use the English language in order to get to the top, not the way you use it. So he is a kind of, he is a kind of mirror. And I think his crimes are a kind of mirror. Not necessarily that people who vote for him have committed the the horrors that he has, but all of us have done things like naughty children and, you know, and have shame over things that we've done that we knew were wrong. We've all lied and known it was wrong, but we've done it. And Trump becomes a way of all of the things that have made him such an incompetent and dangerous leader are things that make people feel better about themselves. And, you know, I think that that's a piece of it that has not been talked about enough. I totally agree with you. I, at least I'm talking about it in my circles. <laughs> so we can, we can, we can yeah. start these conversations and maybe we can start planting the seed because when they started having the pictures of Melania in her former quote unquote modeling days, the rumors between Trump and Ivanka and all of those disturbing, you know, photos and mm-hmm. descriptions of their behavior, mm-hmm. you know, I think to your point, like the mirror is that they wish that he could, they could get away with what he's done. And there is some level of fantasy like, oh, he allows them to play out their worst fantasies. Exactly. He becomes a kind of surrogate. You know, when the Billy Bush tapes came out that were so horrifying, you know, and chilled, chilled us to the bone. I mean, there was just a horrible, horrible, you know, Michelle Obama gave that wonderful speech and this just shook me to my soul. A lot of men were looking at that and thinking, go, man, I've been stifled from saying this stuff all my life. And here's where the figure of the the castrating mother comes in, too. You know, Hillary plays into it. People like Hillary have shoved, you know, a wad of cotton in my mouth over this all my life. And this guy is saying it. Go for it. So he becomes a kind of surrogate for, you know, the worst impulses in us. And, you know, that's... (laughs) that's pretty frightening, you know, when you think of, I mean, not that we don't have plenty to be frightened of without going there, but what it means, what makes it so frightening is that it means that no amount of exposure of Trump's deficits, moral and otherwise, will touch his base. You know, so it's my feeling that all of this, you know, a lot of Democrats have gotten upset about the, the the RNC because he's trotted out, you know, some ridiculous kind of like show of diversity. Absolutely absurd. But he struck some notes that we've worried, you know, people have worried, might get some of those who are sitting on the fence. I don't think anybody's sitting on the fence. I think that, you know, Democrats should just forget about these, you know, Trump followers, forget them. The world, you know, the people who know who Trump is by now, are either with him or not with him. And the key, really, that we have to concentrate on is, you know, fighting voter suppression and generating enthusiasm for the Democratic nominees, getting uh, elected, appealing to, you know, the Trump voter is just, he can't do anything bad enough to alienate them. He can't. So what can we do to 
address the lack of centering of gender in the Democratic side. Like nobody talked about the ERA. They talked about all these other issues that affect women. <laughs> and they talked about equal pay and all these other things. But without um, something that really has teeth, none of these other laws we saw with Lily Ledbetter Act is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is safe. Well, I think that uh, ultimately, the only way that some of the deeper stuff, and by deeper stuff, I don't mean things like equal pay for equal work. I mean things like choice, for example, and things like sexual abuse, that we have to win the election and get different judges in there. I mean, it's really, you know, it comes down to the, you know, fighting on that very, very pragmatic level. In terms of having cultural conversations about it all, I honestly don't know what's going to do that because we seem to be so incapable of doing it. You know, I speak as someone who is part of the second wave. So I've had this experience of being part of a generation of women who raised all these issues, maybe imperfectly, but brought them to the center of conversation and then saw them just pushed to the margins, pushed to the margins over and over and over again. You know, and then to experience the Hillary thing and feel there was so much sexism at work there and to see how hungrily we have clung on to things like, oh, it was the Russians, right? Which is, to me, is a way of just avoiding our own participation in what happened to her. It just feels so depressing. You know, I just, I don't, so, you know, I think that we can count on, (laughs) I think we can count on liberal and left men doing certain things at the level of lawmaking that will be helpful. I don't know that we're going to get to sort of consciousness raising (laughs) that so many of us want until we have some really different cultural, I don't want to use words like models because that's just so, it's just, it's a cliche and it's empty. But when kids grow up, we've got a, a, a generation of kids who are, have completely different ideas about race than previous generations. And again, I'm excluding, you know, I'm excluding <laughs> the, the, the overt racists. I'm not excluding people who have benefited from systemic racism because that's all of us, right? But the a generation of kids who just don't think about it or experience it in the same way that previous generations did. And part of that, a good deal of that comes from having the cultural landscape so different. I mean, you know, from things like, you know, opening of a magazine or listening to records, or I mean, the world is now populated by admirable, powerful, successful black and brown people that kids grow up seeing. We don't have that yet at the level of gender. And I think that there's going to be a day, assuming that we don't, you know, destroy ourselves within the next few years, which is very possible. There's going to be a day when a Kamala Harris is president and some of the, the double binds and the double standards that are so embedded are going to get worn down by virtue of us becoming accustomed to a whole different social landscape. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I think that's what has done it in terms of race. It's what's done it in terms of sexuality. I mean, these things were really, really, you know, when I was growing up, oh my God, you know, the number of things that had to stay in the class was just extraordinary. And it's very, very different now. Can that happen with gender? It seems like gender has lagged behind, strangely as that seems, because, you know, in so many ways, the movements for gender equality and raising of gender consciousness are among the oldest social justice movements we have. And yet there's been a real lag. Well, I think there's so many different, we're not going to get to this (laughs) in this conversation, but there's so many different nuances of what people agree on in, we'll put in quotes, the feminist community. So some feminists, you know, with regard to prostitution, 
want to end demand for prostitution and consider people who are prostituted, people who are exploited, and then there are some quote-unquote feminists who believe that prostitutes are empowered and have agency and, right. you know, need to right. be have that ability to make that decision as a profession. So I think that within the community, there's so many nuances that we need to sort of be aligned with. And part of that, it comes from this concept that goes across all of the differences that we have within the community. Do we want to minimize harm or do we want to prevent harm? And those who are trying to minimize harm have adopted this mindset that we just have to capitulate to patriarchy. There are certain structures that are always going to exist, and we just have to manage within them. And others, like myself, believe, no, no, we have to prevent harm, and we can actually dismantle and look to the racial justice movement for what they're doing to actually dismantle systemic structures. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. (laughs) I do think that we've always had this sort of um, warring camps, you know, within feminism. I would really like to, you know, one of the things that's been sort of depressing to me in terms of the political milieu is the rise of purity politics and the insistence that certain views, you know, if you hold certain views or if you say certain words, (laughs) that you're excommunicated from the community. That's a recipe for disaster, I think. I think that that feminism can, the different positions, whatever you want to call I me, mean, positions is, is too intellectual a word, but the different sides of feminism that you're talking about, you know, we can coexist and work together a lot better than, you know, has been allowed for because people want so much to feel as though they are justified and no one else is. You know, this tremendous drive for self-justification is, uh, you know, just running rampant throughout our politics, which um, distresses me a great deal. But one thing that, uh, you know, I make this point so often that I sometimes forget to make it. I make it in my writing so often. I really do think that in terms of conversations about sexism and sexual violence and misogyny and reproductive rights and a whole host of things, we have to put a lot more pressure on the media because the mainstream media, sure, we see things on Facebook pages and, you know, alternative publications, but, you know, they really have to be constantly gotten at to have panels about these things. You know, let's have a panel about, you know, any number of these issues having to do with gender. That's just something that uh, it's, a, it's a bugaboo of mine. You know, I, I think of the mass media as much more important in people's lives than we realize. We become so internet focused. We think it's like all of the, you know, the fake accounts on Facebook that are getting people to vote for the wrong people. I think most people still do not have the time to be browsing around Facebook and the internet. They hear the news in the morning, they go to work. Maybe they hear the news at night when they come back from work. And so it's the sound bites and the headlines and the way the media digests and presents things to us that is still so powerful. And I think that the media has been so responsible in perpetuating really reductionist ideas about gender because everything gets condensed into the most sensational soundbite. And that's the stuff that sticks with people. Roger Ailes knew that. You come up with a phrase and you just say it over and over and over again, and pretty soon people believe it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I uh, thank you for reminding us of that. This is a good segue to the closing of our conversation, where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. What is at stake in the struggle to end gender based violence and oppression? Everything is at stake. We can't have a just society until we overcome gender-based violence and oppression. Bottom line, no qualifications. What gives you hope? My daughter. My daughter and others of her generation give me hope because they do see the world in a fundamentally different way. And, you know, this is tied to the idea of consciousness raising. I don't agree with every change that's taken place. Some of it I see as shutting down consciousness, but there's also a kind of opening up of consciousness. That's where the hope lies. 
that's where the hope lies. And I guess what I would wish is that future hope would join hands more with those of us who represent the historical struggle. You know, because I think we could be very, very powerful working together. But, you know, I look at my daughter and I feel, wow, this is like, it, it, it makes, there's a Jewish word, kfel, which means you just sort of, you know, your heart just gets warm and starts to burst with, wow, you know, admiration for her, pride. And our final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? The big, it's a big, it's a big question. It's a big question because it's, a, I mean, it's a huge problem. You know, I, I don't really know how to answer it because I guess I feel as though all of us find ourselves in very particular concrete situations. And within those particular situations, we have different jobs to perform so that for some of us, it may be writing. For others, it may be marching. Some of us may have to work more harder on our interpersonal relations before we can even move forward. There's people who are teachers have a particular role to play. So it's the kind of, you know, and this is my answer to an awful lot of questions like this, that I would have probably a different slightly different answer for every person who asked me that, depending upon where they're situated in life. Well, I think that's a very wise answer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Susan, for joining me in this conversation. It's been really fun. I I don't think we've solved any problems, unfortunately. (laughs) I thought we had solved all the world's problems. I do too. And it's lovely to have... um, heard more about your work and come in real contact with you outside of a few Facebook comments and posts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at Q&A dot k-a-n-d-u-i-t dot com I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail dot com with your questions <laughs>